As you're taking a seat, I want you again to close your eyes and I want you to visualize the word that I'm going to say to you. Okay, you ready? Close your eyes. Here's the word. Peace. You know, just think of a vivid image in your mind of what peace brings to that. Got one? Okay, go to open your eyes. I'm willing to bet that for most of you, you, the images of peace that you conjured up are something akin to like watching a sunset, you're sitting on a tree or a tree log, you're sitting on a tree, you're, maybe you're in a hammock overlooking a vast green scenery, or maybe you're the kind of person who likes chilling out in the pool or at the beach with an inflatable with a nice cool lemonade in your hand or something like that. Or maybe you're the kind of person that likes to go on hikes and you just overlook this vast, beautiful creation. But in all these images, did you notice a common theme? In all of these images of peace, no one else was part of that image. In fact, for most of us, if we think about the, 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 the imagery for the word peace, it usually is something akin to that. Rarely do we ever, in our mind's eye, when we're picturing peace, think about a collected gathering of people. And in fact, today, the opposite of that's taken place because we see things like this, where it's like no justice, no peace. In fact, a lot more people today, when they're together, instead of conjuring up images of peace, the images of protest, instead of seeing things that are... Uh, glorifying to God in terms of the unity of the people, what you see is fraction and division. You see things like we're going to end racism, we're going to demand justice, we're going to call for action, we want equality now. Some of those things are good, and we'd say like, yeah, amen, there's, a, there's something about that that we like, but it results in a great deal of strife and contention and anger and hostility and violence and all these kinds of things that come along with that. You see, the church is catapulted into this very same season. And it's sad because for the church, we're also going through a, a large degree of that instability, that kind of contention and, and uh, uh, violent, not violence in the church, but there's that sense of like, man, the church is struggling under this load too. When in reality, the church should be a safe haven. Uh, Christians in the midst of the world, as we submit to God's word in this generation, there should be a vast difference between us. Instead of having contention and factions among us, we experience something like unity. We experience beauty amidst the storm and the torrent of the world's instability. How do we experience this kind of peace, this kind of connectedness, this kind of forward togetherness that the Bible talks about in the world that is largely against most of this? And I have several more examples that I'm going to lay out to you. But let me submit to you this. In, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in these final verses that Paul gives to us, he's going to give us a compelling vision for how the church is to be united as we prepare for the inevitable return of Jesus Christ. How are we to be about our task? These final verses, verses 12 through 28, help us to understand what peace looks like in the Christian church as well as how we pursue that peace. And what we're going to see is that the church is empowered by God's grace to live in harmony with one another and to make progress together in holiness. And those are, those are two things that have to go together. Okay, God has empowered us by his grace to do two things, to live in harmony with each other. And as a result of that harmony, or maybe even connected to this, they're empowered to live uh, and make progress together in holiness. We're not to look like the world. We're not to look like the kind of people that are fighting and are violently protesting. We're not the kind of people that should be allowing this to happen in our own ranks. Now, here's the reality. Even in this room, you might not have uh, gone out of your way to cancel somebody and say, I want this person off of social media. This person shouldn't go to my high school because they're so evil and wicked and vile. But here's what we do do as Christians. We do cut people off. We do say, you know what? I don't want to interact with you anymore because you're, you're toxic to my life. I don't, want to talk, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or you said something about me to someone and now I don't want to be your friend anymore. Or, you know, it may not have even been something overt. It might have just been like a perceived slight. Like, oh, you went after the girl that I was into and now I don't like you. No, we're not friends anymore. That was, that, that's wrong. You don't do that. That's bro code. I mean, there's a million other things too. And what I want you to avoid and what Paul wants you to avoid is living in this factious mindset. He wants us to be a united church. God has died and purchased us for us, but for the most part, a lot of us don't live in this reality because we, don't, we, we look like the world instead of looking like the church right here. And you'll notice, in the church, as God desires it, the church is multicultural, multi-ethnic, 
multi-generational. The church is empowered by God's grace to live in harmony and to make progress together in holiness. How do we accomplish this? Let's take a look together at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We're going to look at the first two verses together as we start uh, from ground zero. How do we start this? We'll take a look. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. And not only that, I want you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And he says, as, a, as an addendum, hey, be at peace among yourselves. Now, this is a, a hard thing for me to preach because clearly this is talking about your church leaders. You get this, right? He says, we ask you, brother, so who's his audience here? He's talking to Christians. Here, I'm asking you guys, Christians, to do what? To respect a certain group of people. I'm asking you to respect those who, A, labor among you, B, they're over you, and C, they're, uh, oops, uh, labor among you, um, admonish you, here we go, and admonish you in the Lord, okay? Oops, try that again. There we go. And they admonish you. So they labor among you, they're over you, they admonish you. And not only that, I don't want you just to respect them. I want you to respect and to esteem them. How much, Paul? A little bit? No, very highly. Esteem them very highly in love because of their respectability, because they dress nicely, because they have a title after their name. No, no, because of their work. So it's not a matter of necessarily respectability. It's about, okay, you do a certain job, and therefore me as a church congregant, as a Christian, I'm supposed to respect you very highly. And not only that, on top of that, I, Paul says, I want you guys, leaders and congregants, to be at peace among yourselves. Don't fight with your leaders. Don't make life hard for them. Love them, respect them, esteem them. And this really is the first ingredient to a healthy, unified church, a unified youth ministry. It's a ministry that trusts and loves its leaders. So let me put it like this. And, and, and here's the phrase, point number one, if you're taking notes, and I really hope and would love for you to do that. And if you don't, please do. Start tonight. I would like that. Here's my first point. You need to give great respect to your pastoral leaders. And here's what I mean by that. I don't only mean people who are pastors in your life. I don't mean only someone with the title Pastor Rod or Pastor Mike or Pastor John or Pastor so-and-so. I mean people that fulfill a pastoral responsibility. So if you think about that, now you know that I'm talking also about your leaders. I'm also talking about your parents. I'm talking about a lot of different people in your life. Give great respect to those who are pastoral in their leadership toward you, people that are called to love you. And Scripture gives you a lot of different reasons for why that is. In fact, we're going to look at those. But you're called, as a student, to give them great respect. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in today's day and age, it's kind of hard to understand what great respect for leadership looks like because it's so varied. In fact, in different cultures, respect is shown in different ways. If you were to go to an eastern country like Turkey or Saudi Arabia, one way to show respect to your host is by burping after your meal. I mean, you belch. You, just, uh, you, you let them know, I liked your food. Uh. <laughs> you show them that by, by, by doing that. But don't roll up to Pastor Mike's house and do that because he's not going to receive that the same way. But in Saudi Arabia and places in Turkey, you're going to find that. How about this? You've been told uh, one way to respect the people that you're sitting with at the dinner table is you don't slurp your food, right? If mom, mom probably slapped your hand a couple times. You try to slurp it up. And she's like, no, no. You, Americans, for whatever reason, we like quietness when we eat. So when you crunch your chips, crunch quietly. Like when you, when, you do, when you eat your food, you're supposed to eat quietly and with close your mouth. But in China, slurping your food is, again, another sign of respect and affection to your host who made this awesome soup. I think that's a great idea. I'd love to see Americans adopt this. You get your soup, you're, you, know, you just slurp it up super loud, but that's a way to show respect and affection for your, your hosts. And slurping is equivalent to, this, to saying, like, this is super good, I loved it. Here's the most weird one. The Maasai tribe in Kenya, these guys are weird. Okay, if, <laughs> in our culture, if I were to spit at you, you would probably be offended and a little grossed out. But in the Maasai tribe in Kenya, get this, spitting at someone is a sign of affection, good luck, <laughs> and reverence. <laughs> please don't spit at me. <laughs> don't do that. Or your leaders or your parents. Get this, get this. They will spit when they greet each other as a sign of mutual respect. Hold on, we're not done yet. A father will spit on his daughter when she is married. 
for good luck and prosperity. I don't know about you, but the next marriage ceremony I'm doing, I'm going to introduce this. <laughs> now, dad, you spit on her. Go for it. It's a sign of respect. Good luck. Here's another one. The tribe, the tribe, not just one of them, the tribe will spit on newborn babies to ensure that the child will not be cursed. So they all take turns, you know, got a new baby. Bizarre, bizarre. Okay, here's where I'm going with that. Showing respect to your leaders, the pastoral leaders in your life, means a thoughtful approach to that. How do I best do that? How do I best show them that I care and that I'm honoring God by honoring them? Pop quiz, pop quiz. Okay, talk to me, okay? Pop quiz. Who put your leaders in your life? Therefore, whose leaders are they? Not a trick question. You're right. Your parents are God's leaders. Your pastors, literally myself and the other pastors, are God's leaders. Your parents, your pastors, your small group leaders, they're, they're God's leadership in your life for your good. But Pastor Rob, my parents aren't Christians. They're still people that God has put in your life for your good. The Lord knows. So your job is not to complain or bemoan the fact that your parents and your pastors and your small group leaders aren't perfect. Your job, according to scripture, is to respect them and to esteem them highly. What that respect and esteem is supposed to look like, well, that's your job. You get to figure out how to apply that. But rest assured, that's your job. Respect them highly. Scripture gives you three compelling reasons why you should do this. Here's what Scripture says. You give respect to your pastoral leaders because they're called to exhaust themselves for you. Now, you've seen this before. Your moms have woken up in the middle of the night to change your buns, or not your buns, I guess, change your diapers to give you clean buns. Your, your dads work long hours in order to provide a house for you and clothes and food. But more specifically, when it comes to your spiritual leadership, here's what Scripture says. The, the job of pastoral-type leadership is to toil, to labor, to sweat, in order that they might present everyone mature in Christ. Look, your leaders and your pastors care about you enough to say, look, I'm going to spend time praying for you. I'm going to spend time, uh, I'm going to spend money on you to make sure that you, you have a, a ride to church and that's gas money and time. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that you know that I love you. That's what a pastoral type leader does. They exhaust themselves on your behalf. Like it's, it's okay, it's 720 on a Wednesday night. Can you think of anything else your leaders might want to do? Of course, right? They might want to sit on the couch and watch a couple episodes of Alone or whatever. They might want to do other things, but they're here not because they, they, they're, they're being forced to, but because they love to exhaust themselves for your sake. Pastoral leaders are the kind of people that are called by God to spend the extra dollar, stay the extra hour, and go the extra mile. And it's not that they're being reckless, but they're being generous. These are the leaders God has called you to respect. On top of that, they are called to exercise leadership. The Bible says that you should respect them because they're called by him to lead you. They're called by him to lead you. They're exercising leadership. They're to manage, lead, and rule, which means God has given your spiritual leaders decision-making authority. He calls them to make decisions for the good of the church and for the good of your small group. He calls your leaders to be thinking about uh, ways and processes that are going to benefit you as a student, as a, as a, as a soul. And God commands them to do this. In fact, if I could just take a, a side here, uh, your parents are commanded by God to lead your life, to instruct you and discipline you in the faith. Your parents are commanded by God to do this, which means if they didn't do this in your life, and I know for some of you guys, it's super annoying that mom and dad continue to stay on your case about this and this and this and this and this. I get it. It's super hard in your role. God has commanded them to do that. In the same way that God calls your spiritual leaders, your small group leaders and your pastors, to lead you and to exercise oversight, obviously he calls your parents to do the same. If you're frustrated with your parents today or this week, recognize your frustration is in part your own sinfulness and not your parents. They might be sinning in their leadership. Your pastors might sin in our leadership. Your small group leaders might sin in their leadership. But God doesn't add a caveat and says, if, unless you're, if your parents are perfect, then obey them. If your pastors are perfect, then obey them. If your small group leaders are perfect, then obey them. Rather, he says, look, give them high respect and esteem. Why? Well, because they exhaust themselves for you, and I, God, have commanded them to lead you, to exercise oversight in your life. And by the way, I've said it already, but let me just make this clear then, just for applicational sake. 
Young person, listen close. Leaders are a gift of God. Okay? They're a gift of God to you. And you may want the return receipt from me, but sorry, it's, the purchase has been made. God, I'm the leader God put in your life. Your small group leader is a leader God put in your life. Your parents are the leaders God put in your life. Respecting their authority at minimum, at minimum means at least this. You ready? Obeying them. At minimum it means that. Doesn't mean you have to slavishly obey everything they say. If they say, I don't like the color black, you can't wear the color black anymore, that you have to, okay, I guess I'm not going to wear black anymore. But it, maybe, I mean, maybe that's your thing with your family. But at the very minimum, having a high respect for the pastoral leaders in your life means that you're obeying their, their leadership. Well, I'm a senior pastor, God, and I'm 18 now. I'm an adult. How do I respond to that? It gets tricky as you get older. I'll give you that. It's not easy. But Scripture still gives you some really clear commands in terms of how to follow a leadership that he's put in your life. If you want peace in your life, if you want to experience a happy home, a happy church, learn to submit to your leaders. doesn't mean you do it blindly and that you just pretend like, hey, everything's fine. There's no issues. There's always going to be issues. There's always going to be sin this side of heaven. But again, at minimum, Going out of your way to respect your leadership is understanding that you must submit to their leadership. They're also called to teach you. This is obvious, but I still wanted to make sure that you heard this. Um, Paul says in verse 12, let me just say this again. Paul says in verse 12, he says, we ask you brothers, talking to the church, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. Talked about the hard work, right? That's what they do. Labor among you and are over you. They're given exercised leadership over you. They're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. That word for admonish has something of a negative connotation to it. Not in a negative, like, uh, it's, it's wrong, but more like it's, it's instructive and corrective. In, in other words, it means, look, when you get out of line, your, your parents, they're quick to come by your side and say, hey, look, you, you messed up, Johnny. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have posted that. And so they say that. They correct you. They're called by God to do that. But not only that, your, your pastors, your pastoral leaders are called by, to, by that same command. They're called to teach you the way. They're called to admonish you. Christian leadership is counseling and correcting. It, it's helping you as a young person say, look, I'm learning still, and because I'm submitting to my leaders, I, I have to humbly know that they're called to call me out. Christian leaders are called to call you out, which means when you come to small groups, if you never feel a bit uncomfortable every now and then, your leaders aren't doing their job. I'm not doing my job. If you never sit in my sermon and feel like, man, I got to change. I got to do something different. I don't feel comfortable hearing that. If you don't feel comfortable, great. That's a good thing because I'm called to challenge you. Your leaders are called to call you out. Pastors are called to call you out. It's not that it's always like, oh, I'm going to crush you, but it's more like leaders who are following God's call recognize that to protect the sheep sometimes means kicking the sheep on the side. Say, get back in the flock, man. I don't want you outside the gates. Come back in the sheepfold. Be where it's safe. Be where it's wise. Respect your leaders because they're called to exhaust themselves. They're called to exercise oversight, and they're called to teach you the way. This is by God's wisdom. Guys, one of the things that your generation will struggle with, and every generation has its own struggles, but here's what your generation struggles with, to believe that leadership and authority is good. You're going to struggle with this because you see bad examples all over. You see bad examples of leadership, but here's what you got to fight for. Scripture says that leadership is God's idea, and he says it's good. doesn't mean every single leader in your life is, a, is, is good at their job. It doesn't mean every single leader doesn't sin. Of course, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean leadership is God's idea. You should embrace it. You should learn to esteem it and appreciate it because it's God's plan and purpose for the church. Want to see unity? first part of seeing unity and peace in our church is to esteem the leadership that God has given us. On top of that, leadership is just the start. It trickles down to the rest of us. He gives us more commands that apply to every single person in this room, not just the pastors and the leaders. He goes on to say this. He says, so he started in verse, eight, verse 12. He says, we ask you, and now in verse 14, he says, and we urge you now, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. So not just Christians, but everyone you come in contact with. Seek to do good to them. And then he says, look, rejoice always, church. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance you come across. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's his will. Don't quench the spirit. 
Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Cling to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. And on top of that, anything that might even appear evil, don't touch that. Don't go near things that appear evil. He says, abstain from evil. If you skip on down to verses 25 through 27, he says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Okay, so what you are hearing now is Paul's interaction with the entire church. He says, look, this is how the church is to act. If you want to see unity in the church and peace, and you want to see progress made by the church, here's what you're to act like. You're first, you're to esteem your leaders. And then with one another, here's how you're to act. You're to love each other, but you're to do it in a certain way, a certain attitude and action. And then he says, look, you guys should have, uh, a, you should pray for your leaders. But on top of that, the kind of affection that you guys have with one another is holy. Uh, in, in, that, in that context, in the Mediterranean culture, like they would greet each other with a kiss. They kiss each other on the cheek. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And the reason it was so egregious is because the kiss meant affection. It meant loyalty. It meant love. Today, none of y'all kiss each other. Or you shouldn't be kissing each other. <laughs> Don't kiss each other. But it shows, it would be the equivalent today of doing the bro hug. You know, you come in there and you do this. Girls, you girls do the full on this thing. Guys, do the bro hug. This is good for us, guys. The bro hug's good. Girls, you can still do this, but recognize Paul is saying, look, show affection to each other, care for each other. Why? Well, because you're brothers. And he says, not only that, verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It's a family affair. This is how we're all to act. And Paul, in this letter, he shows a certain element of, look, guys, in fact, he says it right here in verse, uh, verse 14, the last part of verse 14. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all of these people in the church. Be patient with them. Essentially, if I could boil it down, point number two, we're to make progress toward holiness together. Paul is giving us closing instructions about how to be at peace in the church. And he says, the way that we do it, we follow our leaders, and together we patiently pursue holiness. We patiently pursue that. It's hard because he says, look, there's weak people there. There's faint-hearted people there. There's, there's people that are lazy. He says, look, you got to deal with that. Be patient with everybody, though. Be patient. The largest Lego model in the world, I think still, is this bad boy right here. This is a Lego X-Wing fighter. Okay. May the fourth be with you. Today's Revenge of the Fifth. You're welcome. The wingspan of this bad boy, 44 feet, comes complete with an R2-D2 and a full range of sound effects. Now, this bad boy took 5,335,200 Lego bricks. It took 32 master builders, and it took them 17,336 hours to finish this bad boy. And not only that, but they also recruited a team of structural engineers to make sure that they didn't collapse on people. But this whole thing now weighs 45,000 pounds. And last location was Legoland, California, which maybe they'll open again someday in the future and you can go visit this thing. But notice here, this massive, awesome accomplishment was not the result of one person. It was a team effort. And let me tell you this, whenever you work on a team, Every team's going to have issues, and every team requires good leadership. It's not any different for the church. Look, the team of the church, though, is different because we are fundamentally different. We're not just a, a bunch of people on a, on a school project. You know, when we do a school project, everyone hates that because there's always one or two people on the group that, like, you're not pulling their weight. Uh, it happens in the church, too. But here's why we need to endure on this. Here's why we need to push forward. We're, we're to make patient progress toward holiness together. First of all, because you are family, guys. If you're a Christian, this is you. Listen close. If you're a Christian, this is you. Paul uses the word brothers over and over and over again in this chapter. He calls you brothers. Now, of course, he's not only talking to the guys, he's talking to the girls as well. But what he does is he levels the playing field. If God is your father, then every other Christian in this room is your brother or sister in Christ. They have now taken on a new importance in your life. Blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. Look, when you die, you may have family members that you're related to that you don't enjoy eternity with. But when you're a Christian, every person in this room who belongs to Christ, you will spend the rest of your eternal days with that person, for better and for worse, whether you like that or not. They're going to be your family for the rest of your eternal existence. And here's the beauty of this, okay? Here's the beauty of this. 
I see both males and females. I see at least three different ethnicities, maybe four. Definitely four. Four plus. Four plus. And what's the topic du jour today, guys? Racial justice, equality, men's rights, women's rights, animal rights. I mean, everyone's trying to get their rights on today. But look, the gospel speaks right to this. When you become a Christian, your skin color does not become the primary defining thing about you. Your Identity is no longer, I'm, I'm not a Mexican-American Christian. I'm a Christian. And then I'm those things. You're not a white Christian. You're not a black Christian. You're not a Filipino Christian. You're not any of those things. You are a Christian who also happens to be black, Filipino, white, brown, whatever. This is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't bring to the table like, oh, we're not going to pretend like you're not a different skin color. That's beautiful. That's fine. In fact, that's what God wants. But the beauty of this is that Christianity levels the playing field. No one's better. No one's worse. We're all equal in the eyes of God. And that's beautiful. Now, if you're a, a boy versus a girl, God's not looking down on girls. Look, guys, listen to this. God calls every person in the church the bride of Christ. You ever feel a bit weird about that? That's weird. We are the bride of Christ, gentlemen. Think about that. And ladies, you're the sons of God. Get, get over it. Like, we're all offended here. We're all offended. That's okay. That's the, that's the beauty about the church. If you're, if you're in Christ, you're a brother and a sister in the Lord, and we're all going to, at some point in the future, celebrate God's goodness. Look, this is why we labor to be patient with each other. Because as much as we might get on each other's nerves, we're united eternally in Christ if, in fact, you are in Christ. Doesn't mean we forget about things that are real issues. Like we're, we're gonna, if, if you're lazy, your small group should be on you about that. If you're weak in your faith, your small group should be on you about that. Not that they're berating you, but that they're encouraging you. If you're weak, you're being helped. If you're faint, you're being encouraged. If you're lazy, you're being admonished. All of that done with patience. Young person, you belong to other Christians. You're no longer your own. Christ purchased you. You now belong to other Christians. Here's another one. You should make patient progress toward holiness together as a family of God. Why? Well, because Jesus loved you first. Jesus went first with all of you. No one in this room could say, look, I love Jesus before he loved me. That's impossible. And Jesus went first. This week I heard about... <laughs> I heard... I, Okay, I laughed, and I should not have laughed, probably. I saw this video of this couple that was walking into Disneyland. And, you know, Disneyland's opening their doors right now. They, got, they let, like, 25% in. And this couple was, okay, so they're recording themselves. So they wanted people to see this. They had the, the selfie stick. And literally, this couple, as they're walking into Main Street, they're looking around, and they're crying. Like they're, and the one dude was getting weepy. Like he was like, oh. Like just, his face was contorted, that, that cry face that you get, right? His face was contorted and he's just like, I can't believe we're inside Disneyland again. And so they put it out and everyone's we, you know, retweeting it and reposting it like these guys are totally bonkers. Who's going to cry to get back in Disneyland? And I thought so too, that they were bonkers. But I thought, man, look, I, I know there's a lot of Disney fans out there. Some of you guys in this room are Disney fanatics. I, I get it. Like, it's cool. I, I like it a lot. It's great. But you should never see me crying about walking into Disneyland. I hope I never cry about that. <laughs> and when we do Christmas at the Disney someday in the future, if we're ever able to do that, hold me to that. If I cry, kick me out. Don't let me, don't, don't let me be part of that. But people get stoked and amped up about things that are like, okay, I, you like Disney a lot, but really crying about that? I, I don't get it. Young person, we ought to love Jesus so much that being moved to tears about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, maybe we're not a hair trigger kind of crier, like, oh, I can just start crying right now thinking about it, but that it can move us, that we should care that Jesus went out of his way to love sinners like you and me. We are the scum of the earth. Jesus is the savior of the world who willingly shed his precious blood for your sake and for mine. And that ought to motivate us and move us. And what that should do for us is help inform how we talk to one another, how we care for one another. That ought to inform the way that we think about uh, other people when they annoy us or when Christians get on our nerves and they, they become overbearing and they start saying things that are unhelpful. We should feel that sense of, look, Jesus loved me first. I can get over some of my, uh, my annoyances because Jesus loved me first. 
Young person, one of your biggest problems in this life is not that other people are imperfect. It's that you're a sinner. You see, everyone has their idiosyncrasies. We all have our annoyances that just, you know, grate against us. Like, you know, some people, they put the toilet paper the wrong way. Instead of it being this way, they put it that way. Like, that's anathema. But that's not worth kicking someone out of the church over, right? There's things that are going to annoy all of us. And in fact, when you get married, you'll learn there's a lot more things that annoy you that you didn't realize annoys you. Because now you're talking about different families coming together. It's like, why do you do it this way? Like, I, I vacuum with the lines. Why do you do this? You're supposed to do the lines. Anyway, I digress. You can get over yourself so much more than you do. Why? Because Jesus loved you first. If you're a Christian, you can always know Jesus went first with me. Therefore, when I'm upset with my mom or I'm upset with my bestie or I'm upset with my bro because he said something about, look, I'm just going to get over myself. Let's talk about it. Let's get over this. Jesus loved me first. I need to remember that. And that's what Paul says. He says, see that no one repay anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everybody. Look, young person, your, your MO in this life ought to not be, look, I'm going to get back at people. I'm going to get them canceled. You should not be making fun of people on Snapchat, all right? You shouldn't be taking pictures of people and trying to embarrass them and say things about people behind their back. Like, that's not your thing. You're, you're in Christ. And as a Christian, your life should be about, I want to do good even to people that make my life terrible. See that you repay no one evil for evil. Verse 15, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, sinner and saint. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you see a post on Insta or, or a, you know, on TikTok that's celebrating Gay Pride Month or celebrating something that's antithetical to Christianity that you say, yeah, double tap, I like that. Pastor Rod said to seek to do good to everybody. So I'm going to highlight that post and I'm going to celebrate the things that the world says to celebrate. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying that your objective as a Christian is to, to do objectively good to other people. Now, good by definition of what God says, not what the world says. So it doesn't mean you celebrate a gay pride post. It doesn't mean that you, I don't know, it doesn't mean that you retweet the post that says blank Bernie Sanders. That's not good. You seek to do good to both sinner and saint, salt and light. You should especially do good to the family of believers but even unbelievers on your block, unbelievers on your feed, unbelievers in your realm. Let, let, let us never forget that Jesus went first with us, okay? We didn't suddenly get our act together and then Jesus is like, okay, I guess you're good enough now. Come on over here. You're going to be my disciple. Jesus went first. And that means for you, young person, when you interact with your unbelieving friends or your believing friends, you can go first too because Jesus paved the way. He showed us what it looks like and he's empowered you to do the same. His grace enables us to do that very same thing. Last, we do this because this is God's good will for us. And I highlighted the word good because it's good. It's not bad. It's a good thing. It's good. God calls us uh, as a way of life to have a certain attitude. And that attitude is in verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God calls us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. That's the attitude you ought to have. One of the questions in your, in your small groups tonight, you're going to discuss, then well, what, what happens if I'm feeling sad? If I'm depressed or anxious, am I just supposed to pretend like I'm okay? Just rejoice? Because, oh, I'm supposed to be a Christian, and so everything's awesome, and Everything's amazing, but really it's not because I feel terrible. And I'm not saying that. And I don't think Scripture's saying that. But I'm saying that as the general thrust of your life, you can and should as a Christian pursue an inner reality that says no matter what's happening in my life, I'm going to rejoice not in my circumstances, but in my Lord. I'm going to give thanks because every time I wake up and I open my eyes, God's grace is being made clear to me in a million ways. And most of the time you're not thinking about it. That's why Paul says, give thanks always, because always in your life, there's something to be thankful for that you can always say, look, God, you've been good to me. At the very least, if there's nothing else God gave you, you can say always, God, I thank you that I am a child of God, if you are. And if you're not, you should be. He's good. He's worthy. And you should submit to him. And if you're a Christian, you can say, God, thank you for making me a Christian. 
My biggest problem in this life has been resolved. I never have to worry about going to hell and suffering your wrath. Instead, I've been reconciled to you and my life is better than I deserve, always. And this is good for you. Why? I'm not, this is not positive thinking. This is not just manifesting like we talked about last week. This is not you, uh, you know, this is not body positivity or spirit positivity. This is none of that worldly stuff. This is more in line with what Scripture says about you. It's conforming your mind to what is true. It's conforming your mind to say, I'm, I'm going to align my thoughts to what is objectively real. And what is real is that God has bestowed upon you every grace upon grace. Ephesians chapter 1, every grace, every grace that you could possibly have, he's given it to you. He's given you a savior. He's given you good things for which you can be thankful for. And when you allow your mind to saturate in those realities, suddenly your life becomes a lot clearer. I can give thanks during difficult times. I can be overwhelming in my praise and adoration of God because this is good. My life is good. Do you guys ever have a Brita water filter? And the ones you put under the sink and you put the water in and then it filters through the Brita thing. You guys ever have one of those? A couple of you? Yeah, it's like that. Our, our, our thoughts go into this filter of God's word. And in fact, that's what Paul says. He says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He's, he's essentially saying, take all your thoughts, filter it through God's word, and see if it passes the sniff test. And you could tell when a Brita water filter was done because the water just tastes like tap water again. But when it's working well, it's like, oh, this is tasty. It, it tastes right. Put your thoughts through the filter of scripture and then let that come out. What comes out as a result of that? Testing the things that God puts in your life to say, okay, how do I apply God's word to all of my issues in life? Young person, you haven't even scratched the surface of what scripture talks about in terms of all of your life's issues. So many of you guys, you'll affirm that scripture is sufficient to deal with your life's issues. You'll say, yeah, scripture is enough. God gives us everything we need in his Bible. But do you really believe that? Because look, if you're not bringing your real issues to bear in your small groups or with your leaders, you're not dealing with reality then. You're paying lip service to scripture, but at the same time, harboring and keeping to yourself your real struggles and your real challenges. It's almost like you're afraid to bring it up because you feel like, well, maybe God will be exposed and not be enough if I talk about this really deep and painful thing about my life and God's word is not able to, su to suffice. No, it is. His will is good for you. But part of that will is for you to be open and honest with the people around you. And that's how we experience peace and unity. We're honest with you. We're, we're open to that. And we're allowing scripture to come to bear on our lives. It's almost like you're saying, look, the, the community of God that's at peace and unified, the community of God is word-centered, word-centered. Look, let me just say one thing as I'm thinking about it. When you graduate high school and your parents say, hey, look, go to whatever church you want to go to, please hear me on this, okay? Hear me on. Please find a church that loves God's word and esteems that so important because there's a lot of churches with the name church on it and you know there's grace and community and this or that name just because the name is church doesn't mean it's a good church look for a church that is word-centered this is what paul describes right this is in first thessalonians 5 they don't quench the spirit the spirit speaks to us through his word don't despise prophecies test everything hold fast to what is good they're word-centered you might have questions like okay can a biological male compete in women's sports? What would scripture have to say about that? Now, I know some of you guys have strong opinions, and you would even probably have a right opinion about that. But can you defend it from scripture? Can you say, scripturally speaking, this is why I can logically think about this? Vice versa. Can a biological female compete in men's sports? I don't know why she would. She'd lose. But no shade, no shade, no, no, no shade. I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm just recognizing God has designed us differently. Men have a biological advantage because they have greater testosterone, greater muscle mass, and greater bone density. And that's by design. It's not something that's uh, incidental to our masculinity or malehood. It's something that God designs. And women have a different center of gravity. They have lower muscle mass and greater fat reserves because they're meant to have kids. They're meant to have babies. And that's not to say to shame you or anything at all. It's to recognize that biologically God made people differently. Find a church that's word-centered so you can think about things like this in reality. Okay, these last few verses. Look, this is a hard, high bar to live after. How do we do this, Pastor Rod? This is so hard. I, I barely can get along with my mom and dad. How am I supposed to get along with all these Christians who just annoy me and they say things that upset me? How do I do this? Here's, here's what Paul says. Now, may the God of peace, here we go, peace, himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Get this. This is verse 24 is a kicker. I love this. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. And then Paul closes the letter with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think these verses are all related because they speak to the grace of God to do the work of God. He's saying, look, church, I'm calling you to this high bar, but I'm under no delusion that you could do this by yourself. In fact, I'm going to say, God, please, you sanctify them. God, you do the work in them. And then he says in verse 24, look, the the God who calls you, he's faithful. He's going to do the thing that he's calling you to do. In other words, you're called to be obedient, but trust and rest assured that it's not you alone working, it's God working through you. It's his empowering grace. And that empowering grace, young person, get this, it is enough. Point number three, trust the empowering grace of God to be enough. Oh, man, this is so good. I hope you get this. Okay, imagine for a moment you're taking a road trip, okay? Uh, You're taking a road trip, and so you wake up that morning, and and you say, hey, Dad, uh, did you fill up the car like you said? And Dad says, yeah, I took it to the 76 last night, topped it off. It's got a full tank. You should be able to have plenty of gas to get from here to wherever you're going with your buds. And so you go to the car, you're, you pack it up, you turn, you turn the ignition, and, and everything seems normal. But as the car's turned on, you notice that the, 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 the indicator is on E, and that light is on. And you start saying, well, Dad, oh, Dad. so you, you turn it off, you go back inside. Dad, did you, the, the car that I'm taking, you filled that one up? Well, yeah, I filled it up yesterday. Well, but it says E, and the light's on. It says, well, no, I don't know what's going on there, but I promise you, I filled it up. So now you have a choice. Will you believe your dad that he filled up the car, turn it on, and just go on your merry way? Or will you believe the indicator on the car that says empty? Which do you choose? You see, in Christianity, it's essentially the same. God tells you, look, young person, I have given you every grace that you need to be obedient. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you've given, I, your tank of grace is maxed out. It's full. But when you get to church, you'd be like, man, I'm tired. I don't feel maxed out with grace. I just feel like I'm barely crawling with grace. I don't even know if I can open my mouth today. I'm just so tired. I feel exhausted. And to that, God says, no, your Christian car is fueled up with grace. Step on the gas. You got this. See, that's what's happening here. When we trust that his grace is sufficient, it's like, I know Physically, I know when I look, uh, uh, just physically, I'm looking at my energy. I'm like, man, I'm tired. I don't feel good about this. But if I'm trusting God, I can say, look, I'm going to take steps of obedient faith and trust that there's going to be enough grace gas in the tank to get me where I need to go. And let me tell you, young person, whenever I trust God with that, he's faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. He gives me strength. When I wake up early in the morning and I'm tired and I don't want to read my Bible, I do it anyway. And he gives me strength. No, it's not always rainbows and kittens and unicorns, but... I get it done. And I end up walking away saying, thank you, God, that was good. You come to small groups and I praise God that you're here. Good job on you for being here. You could say, look, God, I know that I'm tired and I don't want to be here, but God, please help me to be obedient and to enjoy it. And I'm going to obey you by not neglecting the gathering and trusting that you're going to be faithful to me. Guys, trust his grace. Trust his grace. Look, the whole purpose of his grace is to sanctify you. That's what he says. Now may the, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. I like that because essentially Paul says, look, I'm calling you in this letter to be sanctified, to live holy. But it's God, the God of peace, the one who gives us this grace is the one who brings peace to you. He's the one who he himself is doing the work. He's not delegating to someone else to say, hey, can you go take care of Billy Bob? He's tired. Go take care of him. You know, help him get sanctified. No, he himself is involved in the work. His Holy Spirit is the one who's enabling us to be completely sanctified body, spirit, soul, and the purpose is to be kept blameless at the coming of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, he wants a pure bride. And he says, look, I've given you the power to be obedient. I've given you the power to be ready for my return. And that power is grace. We sing the song, right? His grace is, or your grace is enough. Your gra-. Okay, I'm butchering the song, but you, the song, your grace is enough. We sing that. But do you believe that? Do you believe that? We entrust the power and grace of God we're taking notes. I got three quick ones here for you, and I hope that you do take notes. I want you to take notes. I work hard on my sermons for you guys. I really don't want you to take notes. We trust his grace because it's comprehensive. His grace is comprehensive. It's not just a little bit. God's not just interested in your pinky toe. God's grace is whole life. That's why he says he wants, him to, he wants 
God to sanctify them completely. Spirit, soul, and body. Every part of you needs to be sanctified. And he says, look, I know God's grace can do that. And that's what I want. It's all of you. It's like good insurance, right? It's like good. If you get in a wreck, hopefully your parents have insurance on your car where the whole thing is covered. Like the uh, bumper to bumper coverage. Uh, if it gets totaled, they can buy you a new one because the, the insurance has the whole thing covered. Same thing with how this grace works. Look, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Write this down. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given this to you. It's a gift by his grace. And your job is to put the grace to work. The, the gas is in the tank. You need to step on the gas and make the car go forward. The Christian car. comprehensive. God's grace is comprehensive. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He calls you to it, but he does it himself. It's comprehensive. It's confirmed by God. Look, you can obey him and trust that he's going to help you figure this out. He's going to help you walk the walk to run the race. A show I really like is called Alone. Um, the people are dropped off into this island by themselves, and their job is to survive as long as they can off the land. So they build their own shelters, and, you know, they go and hunt food, uh, and, and they, you know, they, they just figure life out by themselves, alone, uncharted territory. God doesn't do that to you. God's not dropping you off and saying, okay, you're in True North, figure it out. Go for it. Hope you, hope, good luck. Call me if you need me. See, God's not doing that. God gives you the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the parakletos, which means he's alongside, in, with, and through you. The whole purpose of the Christian is to live out the Christian life by his grace, and he's confirmed it. How do you know that God is with you? Well, I guess you could assume he's going to be with you because here's a small thing. He gave his son for you. If he's willing to send his son to the cross to die for your sin, surely he's willing to protect his investment by giving you his spirit. It's confirmed. And young person, here's something you need to know. Grace to be obedient is a birthright of Christianity. Okay? It's a birthright. If you have a family that's wealthy, one of the birthrights of your family inheritance might be to get a sizable chunk of change when your parents die or, I don't know, when you move out of the house, maybe they give you a lump sum of money to buy a car or to buy a home or who knows what. It's part of your birthright. The birthright for the Christian is God's grace to be obedient, to walk holy together in the church. Not just walk holy by yourself, but to walk holy together. God says through Paul, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Young person, God is not stingy. God is not looking to you and saying, man, you're asking for more? You want more grace? <sighs> okay, I guess. God is more than happy to confirm his grace by giving you abundant, an abundant supply. Last, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul says, look, as I close out my letter, I'm going to end it the way I began it. I want God's grace to be infused to you, uh, dispensed in great measure. May it be with you. His empowering grace is enough because it's comprehensive, it's confirmed, and it's constant. It is with us. I finish this sentence. Like a good neighbor... Look, State Farm ain't got nothing on Jesus. Jesus' grace is better than State Farm, young person. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. God's grace, his power to be holy, to be forgiving, to be faithful is available. I know when you put the key in the ignition and you see an empty on your inner indicator, it might be easy to be like, man, I'm just, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm unhappy. I can't. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough this or that. Jesus has enough. His grace is sufficient for you. Trust that. Rely upon that. Don't do your Christian life by sheer will and determination and grit. There is a place for resolutions, but those resolutions are built on the grace that Jesus offers us. Today's climate, when the election was just wrapping up, I, I, I got really upset when I'd see I don't know, I'd see cartoons with Trump and, you know, they'd make fun of him in horrible ways. And they, you know, they, had a, they made toys of him and, like, the toys are profane. I thought, see, that's a, the that's a difference between these political parties. You know, this political party, one political party is very much okay with, you know, mockery and insults and, I mean, just the worst of the worst. But then 
I saw conservatives who would make just as bad cartoons and there's flags. I, I, would you believe that today when I was driving to, to church, I saw a flag that said Trump 2024. Like it's still 2021, man. Come on, give me a break. I need to breathe a minute. But there was already a flag. Uh, but that's beside the point. Conservatives, you know, political conservatives made posters and flags that said blank this person. You know what I'm saying. Tracking with me? I thought, really? Really, that, that's, that's the political party? That, that's what they're doing? The people that are on our team, that's what we're doing? I mean, it doesn't happen only in politics. And you could just see it on, on different social media feeds when you see the LGBTQ plus promotion or demotion. You see some people who are supporting it. And at the same time that they're supporting it, they're like making fun of Christians and Jesus. I saw a poster of a guy. It was a photo of a guy who was standing, dressed up as Jesus, standing in front of a group of Christians who are protesting at something, and they were like saying, hey, God calls you to repent, and those things. And he was dressed up as Jesus, and it said something like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a queer too, and it's totally fine with me, or something like that. So essentially, they're saying that our Savior, our Lord, our God, the one that we worship is a homosexual who's fine with it. I thought, man, how offensive on both party signs. Uh, civility is lost. You know, the res- even respect, basic respect and decency is just kind of thrown out the window. This cannot be how the church looks. We don't fight on those terms. We don't act that way. We don't, we don't act the way the world acts. Whether you identify as this or that, conservative or liberal or anything else in between, look, the Christian church is called to be different. Why? Well, because we're empowered by God's grace to be different. And the first distinguishing mark is that we ought to be unified. We ought to be together to live in harmony. And that harmonious togetherness moves us forward into holiness. We're not just together to be a social club. We're not just, you know, making widgets or giving out cookies or trying to, you know, serve the community, which is, there's, there's, good, there's good things from that. We're a church. We're called to live holy together, making forward progress by God's grace. Let that be a distinguishing mark about us. Tonight, as you guys spend time in small groups, please, I encourage you, be open, be honest. Answer the questions to your best ability. Don't be afraid to open up a can of worms. This is exactly what we're here to do. And that's going to help promote our peace. It's going to help us be holy together and to live patiently with one another. Let's pray. 